0: Welcome to The Cauldron, a podcast hosted by Ed Bolden Greer, the creator of Ravensvale. In each episode, Ed will have free-flowing conversations about horror, life, culture, and personal growth. Expect to hear from storytellers, authors, horror experts, life gurus, thought leaders, and influencers. The Cauldron is a place where concoctions of a lot of ideas are brewed down to potions that are sometimes important and useful, sometimes eccentric and bizarre, but always just what you need. The Cauldron Podcast may contain explicit language and thematic elements not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Well, hey there, family. Welcome to the Ravensville Cauldron. I'm your host, Ed Bolden Greer, and I'm joined today by my guest host, Jacob Garner. Hello, hello. This is the fourth episode of our six-part series, Jacob's Haunting. In this series, we're researching five of the darkest urban legends of Appalachia. And if you're just now joining us, my co-host Jacob suffers from phasmophobia. Mm. (laughs) Phasmophobia specifically refers to an intense, abnormal fear of ghosts, but the word is also commonly used to describe an individual who has an intense and prodigious fear of the supernatural and paranormal. Well, Jacob, today we're going to dive into one of the most fascinating legends uh, of Appalachia, the Moon-Eyed People.
2: I was super, super stoked to do the research on this one. I think out of the last three topics we covered, this one I actively had to cut quite a bit out of my notes. Otherwise, this was going to be a two-hour podcast.
1: So who were the Moon-Eyed People? How much of this legend is true, and what evidence is there to support or refute it? In this episode, we'll examine the sources, the stories, the theories about the Moon-Eyed people, and we'll try to answer the questions, who were the Moon-Eyed people of Appalachia? So, Jacob, uh, you took a trip recently to
2: Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a blast. It was so cool. So how were the spirits in Williamsburg? Well, there were a lot of, like, really old breweries there, so I had some really good spiced ale, and it was around Christmas time, so I had some mulled wine as well. Hey, Jacob. Yeah.
1: Got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What is this podcast about?
2: Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well as, as far as the ghosts go, I wouldn't know anything about the ghosts.
1: Well, Jacob. As you evidently didn't know, Williamsburg is considered one of the most haunted cities in Virginia and perhaps the
2: United States. For real? (laughs) Yeah. I never got brought up in any (laughs) of the tours I went to.
1: It was founded in 1632 and witnessed both the American and the Civil War.
2: Yikes. Um,
1: Jacob, did you go to uh, Peyton Randolph House while you were there?
2: Yes. Yes, I did, actually.
1: The Peyton Randolph House is one of the most haunted buildings in colonial Williamsburg, as it's seen a horrendous number of tragic deaths and savage mistreatments of slaves in its past. People claim to have heard strange sounds or or even seen ghosts in the windows.
2: That's horrifying because I didn't know that. I, I definitely did take a tour called the Paradox of Freedom. And it was a 45-minute long tour during the daytime. And they detailed just how terrible the Randolphs really were to their slaves. And while I wasn't clued into the spirits that are reported to be haunting that building, I will say that when you really started to get the details of how they treated those people – I definitely felt uneasy the entire time I was in that building.
1: So one of the things that we know is that the Randolphs were just a husband and wife. Yeah. And they had over a hundred
2: slaves. (laughs) A hundred and eight slaves for two
1: people. That's ridiculous. It was so sad. First of all, slavery is ridiculous. but (laughs) Yeah. Uh, did you happen to go to the public hospital for persons of insane and disordered minds?
2: Uh, I went by it. It was currently under renovations or something, so it wasn't open to tours at the public. But to be fair, if I knew that it was a mental institution that was that old, I definitely would have just kept walking. I wouldn't have gone into that building.
1: (laughs) I I understand. Um, Well, it was the first of its kind. Uh, and it's considered one of the most haunted places on the East Coast. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Patients were treated with harsh methods, uh, unusual drugs, freezing water, electricity. Many people still believe that the spirits of all those tortured patients linger there.
2: Uh, Yeah, probably.
1: (laughs) What about the George Waith House?
2: Uh, Yeah, actually, I did a little bit of a tour – uh, during the day, that was about 20 minutes long, I would say. If you remember, I sent you a picture because on the outside of it, they had a banner saying ghost tour is available at sundown.
1: Yep. So the the George Waith house is considered uh, by most to be uh, haunted by the ghost of Ann Skipworth, who committed suicide after her husband cheated on her with her sister. Uh, people... Oh people smell perfume and I hear doors slamming. Uh, it's also worth noting that the house was used as a hospital during the civil war.
2: Oh, and there you go. That's, that's definitely gonna, that's a ghost factory. Right.
1: (laughs) Did you go to the public jail?
2: I did actually. Yeah.
1: The public jail, uh, held prisoners who were awaiting punishment such as branding, whipping and hanging. Um, they had some very notorious prisoners. They had 15 henchmen of the pirate Blackbeard.
2: Oh, yeah. I actually went to a pirate trial um, the second night I was there, oh. and they had Blackbeard's first mate, and uh, we as the crowd were supposed to convince the magistrate to either release him or execute him. Ah,
1: that sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that the jail was well-known for was uh, bouts of typhus, which is a disease, and people um, that are there visiting the, the jail and people who've investigated the jail report an overwhelming sense of despair and sadness in the air.
2: Oh, well, that wasn't my experience. I was having a blast. I got me a nice hot toddy <laughs> outside. And I was like, oh, man, look at these big heavy bars. That's funny. <laughs> I was taking pictures behind the bars like I was thrown in jail.
1: Hello, family. Today, we're taking a moment to talk about a very important issue that affects millions of people worldwide. Human trafficking and slavery.
2: January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. A time where we raise awareness about these heinous crimes and work together to prevent them.
1: Human trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery where people are exploited through force, fraud, or coercion for various forms of labor or commercial sex
2: trade. It's a global problem that does not discriminate. It affects men, women, and children of all ages and backgrounds. But together,
1: we can make a difference. We can educate ourselves and others about the signs of human trafficking We can support organizations that are working tirelessly to rescue victims and prosecute
2: offenders. We can advocate for stronger laws and regulations to protect victims and prevent these crimes. And most importantly, we can spread the word and raise awareness.
1: This month, let's stand together against human trafficking and slavery. Let's be
2: the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Remember, your actions matter. You have the power to make a difference. Together, We can end human trafficking and slavery.
1: Now, family, before we take a deep dive into the Moon-Eyed people of Appalachia, I want to remind everyone that next week's episode continues our Jacob's Haunting series with an episode about one of Appalachia's favorite cryptids, the Mothman. Oh, yeah. Join us next week and find out about the supernatural phenomena that has been reported in conjunction with the Mothman sightings. So, Jacob, did you do your homework?
2: Most definitely.
1: Well, let's hear what you found.
2: So, let's go ahead at the top of my investigation into this stuff to clarify why they are called the Moon-Eyed Blue People of Appalachia. If you're like me, uh, when you first heard the name of them, I would have assumed that they had very large eyes or something like that. Yep. It actually turns out uh, the Moon-Eyed people got their name because they saw poorly during the daylight hours. So their eyes were only good under the moon, essentially. At night. Oh, yeah. So the Moon-Eyed people are associated with Cherokee mythology in North America. As a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm going to be discussing some belief systems of uh, the Cherokee Nation that I found online that coincides with this information. I don't claim to be an expert on this tribe, so if I get something a little bit wrong... My apologies. I'm trying to remain as respectful as I can. Don't cancel Jacob. Please don't. Please don't. So, according to the Cherokee legend, uh, the Moonite people were a mysterious group of beings with light or pale skin and large round eyes. They're said to have come to the area before the Cherokee and were considered nocturnal, living underground or in dark caves. Some versions of the legend suggest that the Moon-Eyed people were peaceful and eventually disappeared, or they merged with the Cherokee and eventually, through the increased mixed generations, they just kind of phased out of existence, Uh, while others are implying a more mystical or supernatural origin, or, as I like to expound on, the extraterrestrial (laughs) claims that they have for the Moon-Eyed people.
1: So I I guess for those new listeners, I guess we need to explain that your phasmophobia doesn't extend to the supernatural aliens or to aliens in general, the extraterrestrial.
2: Oh, no. Yeah, no. I love, I love learning about aliens, extraterrestrial beings. I think that they're super, super cool. They can be scary, sure, but not as scary as a ghost. Now, an alien ghost, like what we talked about in the last episode, probably pretty scary to me. But yeah, man I, I love a good alien investigation.:
1: So if it. there was an alien-haunted house
2: maybe. OK. <laughs> maybe. Continue. <laughs> so something that's really interesting about a race of people that have kind of a pseudo-curse that they can't really see during the daytime actually becomes a blessing. When you consider the geography and layout of Appalachia. So, for a lot of our listeners that are not familiar with the area, there are a metric fuck ton of caves and hollers and really low, dimly lit areas that, if you had the ability to see a little bit better in those areas, bada bing, bada boom, yeah. you're not. Gone.
1: Not to mention that uh, the forest coverage makes everything under the canopy kind of dark. Oh, as well. yeah.
2: Uh, And the moment that the sun starts to set behind a mountain peak, it gets dark quick as well. Uh, I actually attempted, uh, because I was just curious, how many cave systems that there are in Appalachia. We still have no idea. Nope. They said that we could spend the better part of the rest of this century trying to map it all out. We still would have no idea, which leads me to believe that maybe Mm -hmm. the Moon-Eyed people are still living out there, man. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just throwing it out there. So I've got a couple of different accounts of what people kind of believe that the Moonite people are. It's going to kind of fall into three different theories. Uh, the most prevailing theory is that it was a group of European settlers and explorers that ended up coming here to Appalachia to do mining. And then due to the remoteness of the area, they eventually got cut off from the rest of the population and then ended up developing their own sort of culture and whatnot like that. And then eventually, either through inbreeding or being assimilated into the Cherokee Nation, once they moved into the area, that's where they disappeared. There's another theory that proposes that the Moon-Eyed people were an indigenous race that predates a lot of what we understand about indigenous populations in the area here in North America. And then the third theory is aliens. Of course, it has to be aliens. But coincidentally, it coincides with a Cherokee uh, cultural belief called the Star People, which I will go on about in a little bit. So I have an interesting quote from Billy Ray Palmer of the Cherokee County Historical Museum. He gives an account of what we understand to be the Moon-Eyed people in relation to the Cherokee Nation. He said that when the Cherokees moved into the southern Appalachian Mountain region around 1100 A.D., that they have in their myths and legends that there was a race of people who were already here that were short, white, fat, and blue-eyed which is completely the opposite of most of the people that lived in this area around that time. They were also described as only being able to come out at night, and that's why the Cherokee gave them the moniker the Moon-Eyed People. There are various speculative theories and anecdotes surrounding the idea of aliens contacting indigenous tribes in America. Which is another theory that they have about the Moonai people being dropped off here into this area. It's important to note that these theories don't have as concrete consensus among indigenous tribes. So while we will go over some of the accounts of how one Cherokee member or a group of Cherokee tribes people will say something, they're not speaking on behalf of the entire tribe. Okay. But here are a couple of ideas around ancient aliens being the Moonite people. So the ancient aliens hypothesis. So a lot of proponents, as you can probably imagine when it comes to extraterrestrial life here in North America, is that ancient aliens visited Earth in the distant past and influenced human civilizations, obviously including indigenous tribes here in America. They were often going to point to ancient artwork, structures, and myths, The artwork and structures and some of the tools that they had claimed to be a little bit too advanced for what was in the area. The Moon-Eyed people are reported to have structures of pseudo-concrete walls that are reinforced, which is very, very uncommon for Indigenous people that lived in the area. In fact... This is also what leads a lot of people to believe that it was early Europeans that somehow got here way before Christopher Columbus or Leif Erikson, that they would have already had knowledge on how to make these sort of larger walls. But again, that's way before we have any accounts that the Europeans were in this area. So some people speculate maybe the aliens gave them the ideas. Who knows? There's also some accounts of some abduction stories. Uh, Some individuals claim to have a contact with extraterrestrials when they're in these really remote, native, conserved lands that we have here in America. Uh, They report that the entities will sometimes take on either one of two forms, either indigenous, kind of like they're blending in with the people that are there, but clearly there's something just a little bit off with them, whether they have some sort of supernatural ability to do things, maybe communicate telepathically. So they either take that form or they take the form of something that's completely foreign to the native people that are in that area, hence being pale, blue-eyed, short-bearded people, right? So I'm going to talk about the Cherokee Star People. So, some members of the Cherokee Nation share stories about the Star People, and it describes extraterrestrial beings who visited their ancestors. These stories are often passed down through oral traditions and are considered by some as part of the tribe's cultural beliefs. The concept of the Cherokee Star People is part of the mythology of the Cherokee Nation. The term star people refers to extraterrestrial beings or celestial entities that are believed to have come into contact with the Cherokee people long before any other reports of extraterrestrial life interacting with human beings. According to the Cherokee legends, the star people came from the sky and had a significant influence on the development of Cherokee culture and spirituality. These beings are often described as being humanoid or spiritual entities associated with stars or celestial bodies. Their stories often emphasize their roles as teachers imparting wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual guidance to the Cherokee people. It is important to note, however, that these stories are part of the cultural and spiritual heritage of the Cherokee Nation and that a lot of modern interpretations may vary among individuals and communities within the tribe. It's generally understood that these stories are very meaningful within the context of Cherokee mythology and cultural identity. They are not considered historical or scientific accounts. The concept of the star people is rooted in cultural and spiritual beliefs rather than some empirical evidence of maybe images drawn of the star people, right? And it should be approached with an understanding of the role of mythology in preserving and transmitting cultural values, especially as the native people are being forced out of their homeland. This was a way for them to continue their cultural pride. So while that is the extraterrestrial theory of where the moon-eyed blue people came from, some people, uh, as I was doing my research, believe that these are actually the ghost of Cherokee ancestors that lived in the area long before the Cherokees remembered about it. Maybe their tribes moved around and such like that, but when they came back to the area, the presence of their bloodline awoke these spirits to then interact with their descendants. Cherokee beliefs regarding ghosts and the afterlife are often rooted with a rich cultural and spiritual tradition. While beliefs can vary among individuals and communities, there are some general aspects related to Cherokee perspectives on spirits in the afterlife. So I'm going to give a description just really quick about how the Cherokee nation kind of interprets spirits and stuff like that. I figured it would be relevant for the podcast, but also I wanted to see if you can draw similarities between the way that these beings in the spiritual aspect are Kind of similar to the moon eyed people and how they interact, as we find out later. So, in the spiritual world, the Cherokee traditionally believe that there is a separate world that exists besides the physical, but it coexists with it and can kind of overlap like a Venn diagram. The spiritual realm is inhabited by various spirits, including those of deceased individuals. Now, it doesn't specifically say deceased individuals that are directly related to the tribe. Could be indigenous people that lived before. Could have been a traveler coming by. Could have been extraterrestrials that died there. Who knows? Alien ghosts. Alien ghosts. (laughs) So Cherokee spirituality often includes the concept of an afterlife journey. And it has a general guideline around it, the idea is that the spirit of a deceased person embarks on a journey to the other world or the spirit world. And this journey is seen more as a transition rather than an endpoint. The spirit world isn't really a place that you just go and stay. It sounds kind of like it's got an open door policy. You can walk in and out. Some of the original... Uh, belief systems that I would see from the Cherokee that lived and raised up in this area, some of them reported that they believed that cave systems that went deep into the earth were kind of used as like hallways, as it were, for people to travel into to get to the spirit world, but also where spirits would come out of the caves and then interact in the physical world, hmm. which I find interesting when you understand that the Moonite people lived underground yeah. supposedly.
1: That is very interesting. Uh, it also kind of parallels Egyptian lore.
2: Yeah, that's true, actually. So, that was actually, I'm glad you brought that up because some of the burial practices, uh, traditionally, Cherokee burial practices, involved laying the deceased to rest with items that they may need on their journey to the afterlife. Offerings and grave goods are sometimes included in the burial to assist the spirit in its journey. So, I actually looked at a couple of traditional burials of uh, Cherokee tribe members during this time. Especially near Appalachia, they were given stuff like torches. Unlit torches, but torches that they would need, right? I guess they didn't have the moon eyes.
1: Where are you going to need those torches?
2: (laughs) Exactly. Something I find very interesting, too, uh, as another theory, is that the spirits uh, of their ancestors manifested as the moon-eyed people, right? Ancestors are believed to continue to play a role in the lives of their living descendants. There may be rituals and ceremonies to honor and communicate with these ancestral spirits. And again, if you believe that the kind of cave systems that lead into the earth are used as a meeting point where spirits can come in and come out of, you may seek advice from your ancestors at one of the openings or inside of one of these caves. As you later find out through the research— a lot of the way that the moon-eyed blue people of Appalachia are described is kind of like mentors to the Cherokee people, which would then fall in line with the idea that they are spirits of their ancestors, continuing to play a mentoring role in the later descendants of the tribe.
1: Yeah, Jacob, I find that there's a lot of cultural overlap uh, that we're uncovering here. The Cherokees, people of Mexico— uh, and the Filipino oh, yeah. culture.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I remember my families would tell me um, about how there are certain areas in the Philippines like ancient woods or like little lagoons and stuff that they claim that that is like a conduit for where you can meet your ancestors.
1: That's so very interesting.
2: One thing I really want to underline too when talking about the spiritual beliefs of the Cherokee people, uh, I think it can be safely assumed that the Cherokee people are not averse to communing with spirits. They don't look at them as these malevolent evil creatures. Now, there are reports of Cherokees being afraid of spirits of like malevolent intent, but overall, it seems like the Cherokee people tend to look at the spirits that they interact with as being a source of knowledge and wisdom that they can then impart onto the living, which I find really, really cool. Yep, absolutely. So next I have an account um, from Ray Palmer, the guy that I quoted earlier, trying to give another explanation and some more context around the Moon-Eyed people. And he says, Legend has it that the Moon-Eyed people were a race of cave dwellers in western North Carolina, predating English and Spanish settlers who were small in stature, flaxen haired, And bearded with skin so fair and blue eyes so pale that they could not tolerate the daylight. So that means that they only went out at night, earning them the name that we now know as the Moon Eyed People. Nobody knows for certain how they came to be in America, but lore ties them to man made stone structures erected throughout the Southeast from the upper north section of Alabama. And two different Native American tribes have legends of the Moon Eyed People. But a majority of the information that we have about the moon people primarily come from the Cherokee Nation. But this is the interesting part that Palmer points out. The earliest English settlements recorded were in 1587 in Roanoke and 1607 in Jamestown. So where did all these pale ones come from? He says that in the early 1400s or earlier, before Columbus started his voyages, there were 14 ships that left Wales, England. They were lost at sea, and they never did hear from them again. And a lot of speculation is made that they actually survived the trip to the New World and colonized it. Because in 1803, when Thomas Jefferson set the Indian policy for the United States, he referred to these in the removal of Welsh Indians. Huh. Yeah. And according to some accounts, the ships belong to a Welsh prince. His name is Madoc. A 15th century Welsh poem recounts Madoc's efforts to lead 10 ships to America, bringing settlers to Mobile Bay in Alabama, which if you look at it on a map, not too far from where these accounts are said to take place. Interestingly enough, Lewis and Clark also encountered so-called Welsh Indians at the mouth of the Mississippi River and into the Appalachian Mountains during their explorations. Most of the stone structures credited to the Moon Eyes were natural stone croppings reinforced by man-made additions or constructed walls and other fortified places. One was a 850-foot stone wall varying from 2 to 6 feet tall in the Fort Mountain State Park in Georgia. A very different stone structure connected to the Moon-Eyed people sits in the museum in Murphy. If you ever get a chance to, look it up. It is kind of creepy. There are these stone effigies that have been discovered that people attribute to the Moon-Eyed people. It doesn't follow the same traditional art style of the Cherokee Nation or other indigenous people in the area, or have moved through that area either. They look very uncanny. Very large eyes, short stature, perfectly describing the accounts of the physical form of the Moon-Eyed people. And these statues, I mean, if you just look them up, they just look creepy, man. (laughs) They look really creepy. In 1841, while clearing a settlement, a gentleman by the name of Felix Axley actually pulled one of these statues carved out of soapstone and talc out of the river. Mr. Axley bought six acres of land, but he wanted the boundary of his land to be pretty clearly marked. So as he was near the river and digging posts into the ground with markers, that's where he unearthed one of these effigies. The statue that he did find now resides in the museum, along with a display of other uh, historical findings of settlements in the area. Other artifacts have been found in the area, but it's kind of hard to differentiate between which culture they belong to. Again, making these statues of the Moon-Eyed people, supposedly, really stand out from other artifacts and statues that they had found in the area. Palmer also added that they probably would have had the same subsistence technology as the Cherokee, and that they probably would have had to interact some with them. That still doesn't explain why There's such a definitive style to them. Usually when cultures mix and share techniques, especially when it comes to art or anything like that, you'll definitely see a bleed over where you're like, hmm, what could this be? Again, these effigies that Mr. Axley found just stand out, juxtaposed to Cherokee artifacts as well. So... To go in with more information about people's first contact with the Moon-Eyed people, I also have an account from a gentleman named Benjamin Smith Barton. Uh, He was the author of one of the books that I looked into while doing the research. Uh, The name of the book was called New Views of the Origin of Tribes and Nations of America. He published that one in 1797, and it describes an ancient people who were Moon-Eyed. Martin citing Colonel Leonard Mayberry, and he was basically an intermediary between the government and the Cherokee tribe. He writes, quote, the Cherokee tell us that when they first arrive in the country, which they inhabit, they found it possessed by certain moon eyed people who cannot see in the daytime. These wretches were expelled, end quote. Something really, really cool that you can actually see is that the Georgia Parks Division of the Department of Natural Resources actually has a marker at Fort Mountain that mentions legends about one of the walls that we were describing earlier. That two to six foot tall wall that extends for about eight hundred and fifty feet. And it says that it is directly made by the Moon-Eyed people. The plaque apparently says these people are said to have been unable to see during certain phases of the moon. During one of these phases, the Creek people annihilated the race. Some people believe that the Moon-Eyed people built this fortifications on this mountain. So when I started doing a little bit of research into it, the Creek people were the other indigenous tribe that talks about uh, the Moon-Eyed people. Uh, Again, most of the accounts come from the Cherokee, but the Creek did have a little bit of insight onto them. And according to some accounts, it looks like the Creek people and the Moon-Eyed people were at odds over something. Maybe it was land or resources or both. So they decided to attack the Moon-Eyed people at the base of Fort Mountain. And according to what I was able to find, the Creek people strategically waited until they had a very bright full moon, essentially illuminating the entire environment outdoors without the assistance of any torches or anything. This would have been extremely disadvantageous for the Moon-Eyed people to try to keep their wits about them during the drum of battle. This account of the Creek people annihilating the Moon-Eyed people in a battle is another explanation given as to why the Moon-Eyed people just suddenly vanished and we don't see any of their descendants to this day. I ended up also finding a really cool article published from a town south of here. The Chattanooga News in 1923 had an article that mentions a book from 1797 uh, written by Barton, the guy I was talking about earlier, where he repeats the Cherokee legend about the Moon-Eyed people. Uh, In the article, it says Barton, quote, considers them of an albino race. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. This is also where there's a little bit of crossover between Tennessee and the Moon-Eyed people. Uh, Governor John Sevier. Yeah. He actually played a major role in what we understand as the Moon-Eyed people through his unfortunate direct hand in the expulsion of the Cherokee out of the area during the Trail of Tears. (laughs) But – According to a 1969 newspaper article in Forsyth County News, that's located in Georgia, Sevier visited Fort Mountain in 1782. The article cites John Sevier from a letter at date unspecified as saying, Chief Acosta Soda of the Cherokees, then 90 years old. He then tells Sevier uh, a little bit about his forefathers. The information and the stories that the chief then told Sevier was a lot of the oral traditions of his forefathers that told the chief of a fort being built by white men from across the great water, end quote. The chief did die in 1783, which would have been the year following Sevier's visit to the area. Another writer named James Mooney links Barton's Moon-Eyed People story to several similar accounts. In his 1902 book, The Myth of the Cherokee, cites an earlier historian named John Haywood. Mooney quotes Haywood's 1823, the natural and aboriginal history of Tennessee, as telling of, quote, white people who were extraperted in part and in part were driven from Kentucky and probably also from West Tennessee, end quote. And then Mooney obviously attributes this to the Indian tradition and the records that they then gave him. According to Mooney, Haywood says that in the 17th century, the Cherokee encountered white people on the Little Tennessee River. And describes fortifications left by the French that were surrounded by hoes, axes, guns, and other metallic utensils. Adding that the Cherokee found no aboriginals when they arrived. Mooney cites two further independent accounts from Cherokee individuals of his time, of a people who lived north of the Hawassi River when the Cherokee first arrived there, and then went west. One of them described them as, quote, very small people, perfectly white, end quote. <laughs> I love that description. Perfectly, perfectly white white. <laughs> There's also another account that I found. Uh, there's a mention of the Moon-Eyed people from the Cherokee legends of Ohio. Hmm. The author named Barbara Alice Mann, who identifies herself as Ohio Bear Clan Seneca, suggests that the Moon-Eyed people of the Cherokee tradition were Adina-cultured people from Ohio who merged with the Cherokees around 200 BCE. Hmm. It's a little odd, though, yeah. because, again, uh, indigenous Aboriginal people having really fair European features. It's a little odd to me, but that's what she claims. One thing that I found as a pretty significant explanation for the abrupt disappearance of the moon eyed people is just the ugly reality of the new world meeting the old. So I found some statistics that the exact number can be argued, but it's generally accepted around this number that, there was a population decline of Native Americans in North and South America by as much as 90% Wow! of the forced relocation of the people, as well as all of the diseases that we brought. That's just sad. It's ridiculous. And I mean, there are accounts that I would read of people going into a Native American tribe or settlement and... Reporting, yeah, this is just a small band of people, maybe 100 and 150. It seems like they're probably very nomadic. They travel light. Only to then get oral traditions and accounts from the tribe's people that are like, no, there were hundreds, if not thousands of us that lived here. We've just mysteriously passed away. They didn't have any concept of what communicable diseases were. But it is quite literally uh, walking into some areas and it being a ghost town, pun not intended.
1: Well, great job, Jacob. Um, so you were very excited about this episode oh, yeah. and the research that you did. What What's your final thoughts on it?
2: I kind of have two different schools of thought on this. What my gut instinct is telling me, and it's still just a wild story if it's true, that the moon eyed people of Appalachia were really just separated, lost contact Europeans that tried to settle the area. I, I kind of believe that account about the Welsh, Welsh. lord sending ships and yeah. then they just crashed into North America and settled. I find it really, really interesting that there are so many firsthand accounts of people who were expanding and exploring out west thinking that it was just indigenous people out there and then running into white people out in the middle of the wilderness.
1: I I think that's the best explanation.
2: Now, my other theory, because you know how I feel about aliens, (laughs) is that these people were described as being unnaturally pale and that their features were short and kind of smaller. It's almost like they were like big-headed gray aliens that may have come to the area to then impart some wisdom onto the indigenous people.
1: Or perhaps your phasmophobia is causing you to want them to be aliens (laughs) and not not ghosts. No, yeah,
2: they're definitely aliens. They can't be ghosts. No way.
1: (laughs) Well, family, that's it for this episode of Jacob's Haunting. We hope you enjoyed this episode. What do you guys think about the Moon-Eyed people? Let us know. I'm Ed Bolden. And I'm Jacob Garner. If you like what you've heard, make sure you join us next week to find out what Jacob thinks as we journey into the history
2: and mystery of the Mothman. I'm kind of excited about this one, mainly because of all the pop culture references I see to the Mothman. I've seen some depictions of him where he kind of looks like a pretty chill dude. The surface level research I've done on the Mothman kind of makes it seem like he's this ominous harbinger of doom. I guess, if I'm just being honest, my bias is going to be leaning towards, I think, that he's a good guy.
1: Good guy? Yeah. Well, we certainly met uh, a good guy dressed as the Mothman oh, man. at uh, CreepyCon.
2: That was awesome. Uh,
1: which, uh, we just got the dates for CreepyCon. Uh, for 2024, it's going to be August the 2nd through the 4th here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, just go ahead and put that on your calendar.
2: I'm so excited. CreepyCon is such so, a fun event. So toward. fun.
1: Now, family, you adults have a few chores to do. If you haven't already, go on over to Ravensville.com and see about doing your chores on social media. Follow us on all the social media platforms that we've made available for you guys. If you haven't already, you can find the Ravensville podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for Ravensville podcast and make sure you hit the follow button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And while you're at it, please tell your friends about us, won't you? So until next week, family. See you soon.
0: The Cauldron is a production of Small Raven Media. Today's episode was hosted by Ed Bolden-Greer with guest co-host Jacob A. Garner. Audio engineering and sound design by Nick DeVan at Nicky D. Sound. Copyrighted 2023. Small Raven Media. All rights reserved.